You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice with only three weeks left now until the election. I'm Zoe Daniel, and on this podcast, we talk about policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Liam Elphick is an Associate Lecturer in the Monash Faculty of Law. Prior to starting at Monash, Liam was a Sessional Teacher at La Trobe University, Associate Lecturer at the University of WA and Associate to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia. Liam is a member of ADLEG, Australian Discrimination Legal Experts Group, an organisation comprised of researchers from universities across Australia with expertise in discrimination and equality law and policy. Liam, thank you so much for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thanks so much for having me on, Zoe. Let's start with the Save Women's Sport Bill. Just explain what's on the table there and what are the potential consequences if that was successful? Yeah, uh, it's called the Saving Women's Sport Bill, but I think uh, for me and for many others, it does anything but that. So really what it would do is permit the exclusion of all trans women and girls from all female sporting competitions, regardless of age, level of competitiveness, or any other test or marker. So it doesn't set down any requirement whatsoever to sort of prove that. It just gives a a carte blanche right to sporting organisations to exclude anyone who's trans from any of their female sporting competitions. Uh, And in addition to this, and this is something that's not really talked about as much, It actually inserts a strictly biological definition of man and woman into our Sex Discrimination Act, which is our federal law that protects people from discrimination on the basis of sex and on the basis of LGBTIQ uh, attributes. And really what that's doing is denying that there are trans identities and the experiences as well of many people with variations of sex characteristics. And that definition isn't just limited to sport. It applies to the entire law, to the entire Sex Discrimination Act. So there's no doubt that's going to lead to unintended consequences too. What sort of unintended consequences could that lead to? I think my concern is is certainly in the workplace. We have really good, uh, strong discrimination laws despite recent attacks on them from many different conservative quarters around Australia that say it's unlawful to discriminate on the basis of sex, on the basis of uh, one's sexuality, on the basis of one's gender identity, uh, and as well on the basis of one's sex characteristics if they happen to be uh, an intersex person or a person with a variation of sex characteristics. Now, what this is doing is saying, well, no, we're not going to stick with those existing definitions that we've had in the Sex Discrimination Act. We're going to put in man equals this in a really strictly biological way, woman equals this in a really strictly biological way. And the problem we have is we just don't know what that's going to lead to because we haven't um, had a definition like this inserted in this way, as Senator Claire Chandler is seeking to do um, in our discrimination laws. So instead of just applying to sport, where of course there are um, some complex issues here that need to be resolved, this applies to all of the different areas in which we prohibit discrimination, education, employment, provision of goods and services, all of the everyday parts of public and civic life that we all go about. Um, So I'm certainly not keen on uh, throwing that into chaos as I think some of these definitions, some of these changes might do. Tell me about the the general state of the Australian population in your mind in terms of acceptance and inclusion of all people and the nature of attitudes currently. Where where do you think we're at? It, It seems to me that the bill is out of step with where the population is at in terms of progress. 
Yeah, as a discrimination law researcher and advocate, I suppose I always look at it from a discrimination law lens. I think our discrimination laws have been really, really effective at stopping what we call overt discrimination. Um, so really blatant, obvious, direct, intentional discrimination, like a job ad that says women need not apply um, or only whites can apply for this job. Those sort of overt parts of our, of our discriminatory acts in society, I think, have certainly reduced significantly since discrimination law. What it's been far less effective at is what we call more covert discrimination or subtle discrimination or indirect discrimination. And I think that's where there's still a lot of work to do in a, on a civic level, on a public level. So I think to the extent to which the bill um, allows that really overt, explicit discrimination, of course, I agree, it's entirely out of step with society. But there are some covert forces seeking to weaponize, for instance, the, uh, the trans athletes in sport or women's sport debate that is going on around Australia right now. Now, this is not an issue that um, in my workings within sporting organisations or with sporting organisations has been a significant one. It is an issue that requires policies and requires processes to, to deal with, but it's not one that sporting organisations are chomping at the bit to try and, uh, in inverted commas, fix. There's, there's nothing in their minds, I think, that requires fixing here. We already have uh, exceptions in our Sex Discrimination Act that say where the strength, stamina or physique of competitors is relevant and where competitors are over the age of 12, then sporting organisations are allowed to uh, exclude transgender athletes from female sporting competitions. But we know that almost all of our sporting organisations don't do this. So if they're not already using these pretty, you know, significant exceptions that exist already in the Sex Discrimination Act, I can't see why we need wider ones that only seem to serve as a cleavage to open up harm against trans people. This has become, uh, obviously, as usual, a very political issue in the lead up to the election. How, how is this affecting particularly trans people who tend to be used as a, a political pawn in these kind of debates without care being paid to their, their feelings, their mental health and, and their or humanity, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's been awful. Um, I'm not transgender, I'm cisgender, so I can only um, speak to uh, the conversations I've had with my trans, uh, gender diverse and non-binary friends. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that on a uniform level across the board, it's been a horrible experience for the trans community and for the LGBTIQ community more broadly. Um, I think we saw in the marriage equality campaign many years ago, the, the significant mental health effects, the adverse mental health effects that occur on LGBTIQ people when their rights are publicly debated in the way that they have been, not just in the marriage equality campaign, but now in this election, particularly in an election where I don't think many of us expected this to be front and centre. You know, there was, there was like I said, there hasn't been a significant push from sporting organisations or from others uh, to make this uh, a significant issue in the election campaign. And yet it's, it's one of the main Major issues that have been discussed on the front page of newspapers, um, on the nightly sort of news and current affairs shows and, and in everyday conversations on the street as well. So my concern as well on top of that is that we have um, a media that is attempting to both sides the issue, that um, whenever there is a, an article that might be more supportive of trans people, recognising the harm that occurs to them, recognising that they are one of the most marginalised groups in society, right next to it there has to be an article saying how trans people are dangerous and sex offenders and are going to come over and take over women's sport or take over women's spaces. So my concern is that we don't have enough um, uh, of the public support of trans people and instead we have far more of the, the pieces that we've seen in newspapers recently which are attacking their rights and attacking their rights uh, to exist more specifically. I, I think it's worth noting that one in two trans people attempt suicide. One in two. Um, so I'd love to ask uh, 
the people involved in the campaign for the Save Women's Sport Bill uh, and associated campaigns, what they're doing to protect them or any interest they've actually shown in protecting trans people as well as protecting women's sport. Mm. I want to turn to the Religious Discrimination Bill. Can you break that down for us? What, what exactly was that calling for? What, what's your read on that? Yeah, the... At its core, the the idea behind the Religious Discrimination Bill was a good one, which is prohibit discrimination against people on the basis of their faith or indeed their lack of faith. So we have these federal discrimination laws. I talked about the Sex Discrimination Act, which operate as a shield. And they effectively say you cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of, for instance, sex, race, disability, those sort of attributes. Now, at the federal level, we don't have that same protection on the basis of religion. So under federal law, it's actually lawful to discriminate on the basis of someone being, for instance, um, a particular religious denomination. So at its core, filling that gap is a good thing. The vast majority of people, uh, certainly that I've come across, support that move to fill that gap. Strong Western liberal democracies prohibit discrimination on the basis of religion and especially considering the historical discrimination we saw, um, whether it be in World War II and the Holocaust or throughout various other parts of history as well. So at its core, a good idea. But unfortunately, what happened with this particular religious discrimination bill is it was not just a shield, but also a sword that could be used to discriminate against people and override people's rights. So it had all of those sort of shield-like protections that said, yeah, we can't discriminate on the basis of religion, but it also went further and gave a unique right to people of faith to discriminate against others. So not just protection from discrimination, but a right to discriminate against others. And in doing so, it actually um, uh, would have overridden all of the federal and state and territory discrimination laws in Australia, where a person is making what they called a statement of belief. So an expression of their faith. So it would effectively invalidate, um, buckle at the knees, all of the existing discrimination laws we've worked 50 years to develop, where someone is engaging in that religious, uh, religious uh, word-based doctrine. So our biggest concern there was that um, this is a bill undermining discrimination law rather than furthering discrimination law. So can you speak then to the balance of religious freedoms and, the, and also protecting minority communities from discrimination? How do, you, how do you balance those two potentially competing priorities? Mm. It's, it's a really difficult task and I think one that many people, including myself, have sort of dedicated our research careers to, to trying to resolve and, and I think that the work is ongoing. I think you have to start from a position of what we're trying to do is protect people from discrimination. We're trying to shield them from discrimination. So as a starting point, we're trying to say no to, to acts of discrimination and any carve-outs to that have to be minimal and have to be proportionate. So if we start from the basis that, no, we can't discriminate against people because they are Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or atheist. And we also start from the position that we cannot discriminate against someone because of their sexuality or gender identity or sex characteristics. Then we have two really strong starting points. We say no discrimination either count. Now, where the tension arises is is usually where a religious organisation is seeking to express their um, religious beliefs. And in doing so, that may cross over into discrimination against LGBTIQ people. Now, our discrimination laws already have exceptions that deal with this balance. So fairly wide exceptions that allow religious groups to discriminate when they're acting in good faith in accordance with their religious doctrines or when they are required to do so. Um, in order to match the faith of their adherence. So we already have these exceptions in all of our discrimination laws in Australia that give a wide 
um, faith-based perspectives to those organisations that allow them to uh, express, engage and act on those particular views. Now, in some instances, that, that engagement, those acts are going to lead to um, some instances of discrimination against LGBTIQ people. And discrimination law says, well, that's that's a defence in that instance when it when it crosses that line, when it is meeting those tests of good faith acting in religious doctrine. Um, now, we can debate whether that's the right way to approach it. I think, you know, we probably need more of a human rights approach like you see in Europe, uh, where it's, it's explicitly about the idea of proportionality. So are you, um, are the means you're seeking to achieve your end proportionate? Um, what disadvantage is, is being uh, created for LGBTIQ people? What's the overall balance of human rights that we're seeking to achieve here? In our laws, of course, we don't have a federal bill of rights. We don't have overly strong human rights protection. And as a result, we're left with just these exceptions. But the religious discrimination bill went much, much further than what we've already got than the status quo. So even if we debate the status quo, the religious discrimination bill went much further and I think tipped the scale far too much um, in one direction over the other because it really allowed and sanctioned discrimination rather than prohibiting discrimination. So one of the examples that's frequently brought up is the idea of a, a religious school wanting to dictate um, the teachers that they hire potentially and, and not hiring a, a teacher who is of an LGBTQI plus background. Is that something that's already covered off in the existing legislation in the way that you've described? Yeah, it absolutely is. So uh, to my knowledge in all states and territories except for uh, Victoria and Tasmania, religious schools have a fairly wide right to, um, to choose the people that they employ for any staff role. That could be gardener, that could be mass teacher, that could be religious education teacher or pastor um, and can discriminate on that basis. Now, what I would say is that Victoria's approach, which was only developed last year, is a really uh, unique and I think uh, more effective approach, which says um, it comes down to whether the inherent requirements of the role require particular religious faith and adherence to that faith. So if a, if a faith-based school wants to hire a pastor or a religious education teacher and they want to require that, that pastor adhere to the same religious views, um, perhaps in quite a strict way as the school does, that seems to be a logical position to take. But to the extent to which that's not part of the inherent requirements of the role, so more of your maths teacher or your gardener example, then no, those, those individuals deserve the, the standard protections we have in our discrimination laws, which say you cannot discriminate on that particular basis. I think you know, any, any solution here is imperfect, but that strikes more of a balance between uh, understanding the needs of faith-based schools, often which are genuine, to have particular faith-based roles that adhere to their doctrines, versus the also uh, important need of LGBTIQ uh, teachers, staff, and students, of course, at schools, to be protected from harm and protected from discrimination. So striking that balance between the two is always difficult, but I think Victoria has done a really good job of that. Before I let you go, I want to come back to two things. One is the Bill of Rights that you raised. Is that something that you, you think we should actively consider as a society and would that solve some of the issues or take us forward in some ways? I certainly think we should actively consider it and I think we need a, uh, a really robust debate about this at the federal level. We've seen covenants of rights in Victoria, Queensland and the ACT all been developed and implemented over the last five to ten years and all of them I think it would be fair to say have had a positive effect on, on our human rights protection in those two states and one territory. Um, what it means is that human rights are front and centre when it comes to uh, parliamentary decision making, to, to legislative implementation, to 
judges making decisions to tribunals making decisions. So anything that brings human rights front and center is I think a really positive step. Uh, but I think we need, a, we need a robust discussion about what that looks like at the federal level. So is it just like these states and territories, a charter of rights that sort of helps guide us along, but it doesn't give you sort of a separate action like it does in the United States where you can go to the Supreme Court and say, my first amendment rights have been breached. Um, or do we wanna go down that path and we wanna have you know, even stronger, stronger protection standalone protection that is not just about guiding political decision makers and judges and tribunal members about the importance of human rights, but actually says, no, if your rights have been breached, you can come to court, you can claim it, and you can win your case and invalidate laws that are passed. We have to have a discussion around that because we don't have a very strong history or culture of, um, of that sort of override of existing laws. We don't have a strong uh, culture of constitutional override of existing laws. So I think we need the discussion, certainly, and I, I very much support a federal charter that looks like the Victorian Queensland and ACT charters. How much further it goes, I think we need to talk about as a society and figure out where we land. And, and then to bring you back to one of your other points, you mentioned the role of the media. What role does the media play in that conversation, do you think? I think the media plays a really important role in, in any human rights conversation because of what I just said, which is that we don't have this strong history or culture of human rights. So we actually need the media to get involved and, and talk about human rights um, and ensure the public can understand human rights. I think too often, and if we go to this uh, debate around women's sport and, and trans athletes, too often we don't take a human rights perspective. Um, we obviously take, uh, or the media obviously takes a perspective that um, is about the most clicks, the most views, the most reactions, um, the most response from the public. And unfortunately, you know, in-depth analysis of human rights protections is not going to lead to that. So I think what we need to do is try and bring those two things together, try and make human rights language more understandable to people. And hopefully that's something I've been able to do in some part today. But, but also ensure the media is reflecting that because uh, we all know, and of course, you know better than most how important the media is and not just reflecting public opinion, but also shaping and changing public opinion. So if we have a media that is uh, well-versed in human rights language and understanding the importance of human rights, why we need to protect people from discrimination, why it's so important that transgender people, for instance, have a space in sport and feel included, um, why it's important that LGBTIQ people and kids, staff, students can go to a religious school and not feel like they're going to be harmed or discriminated against, why it's important as well for faith-based schools to be able to express their, their um, genuine good faith beliefs about religious doctrine in a way that doesn't harm other people. All of these are important human rights concerns and we need a media that is well-versed on them, can talk about them, can engage with people who understand them and engage in experts who understand them and ensure that the public comes along with them. Because if the public comes along on these human rights discussions, we're going to have um, a much fairer and just society than we do right now. Liam Elphick is an Associate Lecturer in the Monash Faculty of Law. Liam, thanks so much for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thanks so much, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.